Hi, I'm Derek Jensen. This is Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network. My guest today is Sam Kromp. She's an activist, writer, high school teacher, and the founder of a women's self-defense nonprofit called Warrior Sister Society. She's presented numerous speeches on radical approaches to environmental and social justice activism and continues to incorporate these elements into her curriculum for her high school students. Her organization, Warrior Sister Society, is the only women's self-defense nonprofit providing ongoing training and defensive materials to women. So thank you for, for agreeing to be on the, the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Um, okay, so the first question is, what is um, what what is the uh, Warrior Sister Society? Sure. So as you mentioned in the introduction, we are uh, we describe ourselves as a women's self defense nonprofit. We're based out of Eugene, Oregon, but we'd like to expand to other areas of the country and you know, potentially the world if we can get that big. But what we do is we, firstly, train women um, in basic reality-based self-defense techniques. Um, and along with that, we also do a lot of educational work, um, primarily letting people in the community know that women are training, which um, we've kind of seen proven in past studies and in past examples to work really effectively in stopping violence against women, just letting people know that women are prepared to fight back and defend themselves if they need to. So um, what we do right now is we're running three programs in Eugene, one which is um, for women who are living at the Eugene Mission, one which is a co-ed training for high school students in Springfield, Oregon, and one which is an open training for all women um, at a local community center. And so each of the trainings is kind of geared towards the group of people that comes to them. Um, but that's what we're doing right now. And kind of along with the simple trainings in basic self-defense, we do a lot of training in basic confidence-building techniques. And we also have our own belt system, which is unique for our organization instead of handing out a like a blue belt or a green belt. What we do is we hand out different defensive materials as women progress and show sound judgment and um, ability to do the different uh, tasks that we're teaching them how to do, different techniques. So, for instance, when they walk in the door, they get handed a emergency whistle, which is just a simple whistle that you can attach to your keychain that's extremely loud and really shrill and could effectively ward off um, a perpetrator or at least call attention to where you are. Um, and, you know, once women have been participating for a certain length of time, then we give them a defensive keychain, which is a keychain that you can put uh, your fingers in and it is has pretty sharp points and you can kind of put your hold that hold on to that when you're walking in a place that you feel might be dangerous or um, use it. Um, when you need it. And then we kind of keep doing that, and as they progress, they'll get things like um, pepper spray and a stun gun and stuff like that. So that's kind of the unique program that we've created. But everything that we do is geared towards women specifically, even though we train um, high school students as well that are co-ed. Um, we primarily are built to serve the special needs of women. So... Um, this, this may be, in some ways, kind of an obvious question, or maybe it's a question that only a guy could ask, but so why are you doing this? Why do you train? Yeah, I think um, I think it 
while it is an obvious question with a simple, straightforward answer, I think there's a lot more to it. Because um, I guess to put it simply, we train because we live in a rape culture. But that term is thrown around a lot, and we hear it a lot, and it means um, much more than I think it's made out to mean when people use it really quickly and just move on. Um, so I guess I'll, I'll kind of explain what I mean when I say that we live in a rape culture, which kind of shows the reasons for why we train. So um, firstly, I think it's important to look at the statistics. Um, first of all, you know, one in six women right now will be raped in her lifetime, and that's a horrifying fact. Um, but one in three will be sexually assaulted. So that's the full third of the female population will be sexually assaulted in her lifetime. Um, and 60% of assaults go unreported, and I think that that's a very high estimate. A lot of people have guessed that um, more more assaults, more assaults uh, go unreported than that, far more. Um, and 97% of rapists never spend a single day in jail, and I think that's a really telling one, too, because it goes to show... Um, how our justice system works um, and who it works in favor of. Um, but those, I mean, those statistics are thrown around a lot. I think if you've taken a basic women's studies class, you've probably heard the majority of those. Um, but it's really hard, I think, to get a grasp of how this culture plays out in the lives of every woman, of every person who's living in it. Because, of course, you know, those statistics, they're not just numbers. They're, you know, names. Of, they have names and they have faces. And each one, you know, is a life that was affected by that assault or that rape. Um, so I think I think that's important to understand. And what I oftentimes talk about with my high school students, um, and when I do other educational talks, or that you know, I think that we should repeat these statistics again and again and again every single day to ourselves until we can internalize them fully, um, and then keep repeating them until they're no longer true. Um, so that's, I guess, one element of what a rape culture means. But, of course, you know, another element is that it's pervasive. And it's in everything, every product that this culture creates, from, you know, movies which most often have a protagonist, which is male, um, and more likely a male who gets all doesn't take no for an answer. Um, those are the favorites of Hollywood theater. Um, and, of course, you know, it's in the jokes and my high school students telling jokes that make light of rape or coercion. It's built into the very structure of our society. Um, and then, of course, you know, what, it, what a rape culture really means is that every single one of my female friends has been subjected to some form of unwanted sexual contact. And I'd say almost everyone has a story to tell about some unspeakable horror that's been committed against them. So um, I think that's, I mean, that's why we fight. That's why we train, because we live in a rape culture. But the reality is that uh, this rape culture has been going on for a very, very long time. And I think women have been fighting it for much longer than I've even um, been alive. But unfortunately, it continues. So, um, you know, we train because of the work that's been happening so far hasn't been enough. And although there's been amazing work done in generations for generations to dismantle rape culture, um, we're still seeing these statistics. We're still seeing, you know, these horrifying facts. So we need to do something. We need to take measures into our own hands. Um, but I guess I want to talk more specifically about Eugene because that's where we're based. And there's um, some pretty interesting um I guess, elements that go into the rape culture in Eugene, one of which is that 
uh, Eugene consistently ranks above the national average in sexual assault, um, and that's been happening for decades now. And uh, this interview is actually pretty timely because in, I think, last month, there's a highly publicized um, rape that happened on the University of Oregon campus where the perpetrators were three basketball players who are still being named alleged rapists, although they were proven to have had sexual intercourse at the same time with a woman who is now claiming that she did not want that. So um, that happened on the University of Oregon campus, and the University of Oregon was made aware of that occurrence, and they allowed the three basketball players to continue to play the most important games of the season. Um, and they're still not uh, currently looking like they're going to be facing even a, a court case at all for the um, allegations. So that's happening right now. Um, and, you know, the University of Oregon has a 1% expulsion rate for sexual assault, and that's kind of interesting when you compare it to other colleges, which have 10 to 25% expulsion rate. So here at the U of L, I think a lot of people would look at that and they would say that we must have a much safer campus. But I think what that really means, and given this most recent court case, and given the fact that Eugene consistently has some of the highest rates of sexual assault, I think what that number of 1% expulsion rate really means is that uh, rape here goes unnoticed and unpunished, not that it doesn't happen. Um, and, you know, case in point is that back in 2012, there were 39 cases of sexual assault reported at the U of O campus, which is obviously much less than that actually occurred. Um, and there was not a single expulsion due to those reports. So I guess, you know, that's another reason to train, and especially in the University of Oregon, because I guess we're sick of getting the alerts on our phones um, from the campus that says another sexual assault has happened, another rape has happened. Um, those consistent alerts kind of wear down on you after a while. Um, but I think, I mean, those are all case in point proving why, you know, we live in a rape culture. And I think I think uh, it's hard to argue that we, we do live in a rape culture. But a lot of people have said that training uh, isn't necessarily effective in halting that culture. And so I think I'd like to just address this a re one particular recent University of Oregon study actually came out this year um, that studied women who were attending a women's self-defense class on campus regularly for a semester. And it found that um, their attendance and participation in that class made them far less likely to experience rape and sexual assault, period. Um, so that was just obviously one study. And I think, I think that we don't really need a study to tell us that self-defense works. I think that that's pretty intuitive. I mean, if someone is attacking you, if someone is threatening your family, then you're not just going to sit and wait until the threat is over or the attack is over and then report it later. You're going to do what you can to defend yourself. You're going to do everything you can to defend yourself. Um, so I guess, you know, we see training as a preventative measure. We see it as preventing sexual assault and rape. And we see it as putting the matter back into our own hands, into the hands of women. Um, and I guess the last reason that I can, you know, off the top of my head, think of to prove why this is so important just comes from the words of the women that were training. Um, one of them, after the first few weeks of training, said that she felt more confident and capable of just simply walking the streets. Simply, you know, she lives at the mission. So she's constantly dealing with high-stress situations, high-threat situations, and she said that a few weeks of training made her feel more confident and capable. And another uh, 
person that we're training, another woman, uh, a high school woman, actually, she um, said to me, quote, now I don't have to walk around feeling so powerless. And I think um, that's really why we train. So um, a couple things. One of them is that I keep thinking, whenever I think about rape culture, one of the things I think about a lot is um, this time I was um, I was on tour and my plane was late getting into Moline, Illinois. And I got in about 1 o'clock in the morning and then the hotel, I got a ride to the hotel and then it was about a mile walk down a long deserted highway from the hotel to a Denny's. And I hadn't eaten all day. And so I start out at about 1 o'clock and then I'm walking through this deserted McDonald's parking lot and there's this white van in the parking lot that kind of sketches me out a little bit. And what I would do at talks sometimes is I would stop right there and talk about that right there as male privilege because I have the ability to walk through this and then get kind of scared at a, at a van in a McDonald's parking lot. And I would ask the women, what would you do at that point? And always the women would say, are you kidding? We never would have left the hotel room at one o'clock in the morning. And, you know, I didn't actually get scared until I went by this van. And as opposed to the notion of a lonely, deserted highway at one o'clock in the morning. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so, that story is so typical of, you know, the experiences of most women and the disparity between the experiences of women and men in the society. And I guess um, that kind of illustrates really beautifully why we focus specifically on women in our trainings because, you know, a lot of this isn't an issue for men, at least not as acutely as it is for women. And, um, again, I mean, another statistic, and I know that statistics aren't always the best way to articulate an idea, but I think this one is really important, that 99.7% of sexual assault perpetrators are male and 9 out of 10 victims are female. And so, you know, what we're seeing here isn't a mistake and it's not a fluke in statistics. It's a really clear fact that mostly, almost 100% of the time, males are the perpetrators of sexual violence. And 90% of the time, females are the victims. Um, and that's, that's kind of horrifying because what it really shows is that we live in a culture that's training men to rape, women to be subordinate, and society as a whole to consider all of that normal and unavoidable. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's, that's an excellent example of what we're, what we're dealing with right now and another reason why we train and why we train women specifically. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting in a kind of scientific, objective way how society does this so immaculately um, places women from birth into certain categories, whether those categories be um, you know, housewife or object of desire or resource for reproductive exploitation or just some tool for getting off, um, but never human. Um, I think, gosh, that Andrea Dorkin quote kind of comes to my head when I think about that, the one, I'm going to totally butcher it, but she, when she says, you know, woman is not born, she is made, um, and in the making her humanity is destroyed. And then she kind of goes on to say that, you know, she's symbol of this, symbol of that, mother of this. Um, you know, flood of the universe, but she's never human. She's forbidden to be herself. Um, she's not allowed to do that. And I think that's 
that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with, you know, a class called women who are forced into every role but human role, but the role of being human um, from birth, from, from, you know, the very, very beginning. So, yeah. So can you talk, if you want to, um, talk a little bit more about the question of why the women-only training? Um, is, is that, um, what is the importance of having, having both just a space and also a learning environment um, specifically um, aimed towards uh, women. So, and okay, I'm going to ask this question, but um, don't get mad at me because I'm asking this basically trying to throw you a softball. I'm not uh, questioning. It's like, look, I want to take the class and learn self-defense too. What's, why are you going to be prejudiced against me? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> hilarious to me because it's just a typical, unfortunately, a typical question that uh, we get. And I think, gosh, I wish I could remember uh, where this happened, but there was a women's self-defense group that just got protested pretty heavily by some men's rights organizations for not uh, opting to include men in the training. So yeah, this is, I mean, it's definitely a real concern um, that we're getting this criticism. But I guess what I say is, you know, women are a class. Just as I said before, we, you know, we don't choose the class status because it's a secondary class status, but we are a class with individual needs, individual concerns, and therefore, like any other social class, you know, like people of color, we deserve autonomous space. We deserve to organize and train autonomously. Um, and I think it's really that simple, but I guess more to the material point of it, why we need to do it this way, not just why we should be able to do it this way, but we need to do it this way because, as I said before, almost 100% of the women who have been sexually assaulted were sexually assaulted at the hands of a male. Um, and so what I mean by hands is in the most literal sense, the hands, the physical hands of a male on them, you know, hurting them, attacking them. And if, especially if that assault happens over and over and over again in a woman's lifetime, um, you know, those male hands get imprinted on her, on her body, in her memory. And later on, you know, for so many, for so many women, the feel of male hands, therefore, is triggering. And our trainings make it real. You know, we don't, we don't just talk about things. We don't lightly, you know, run through the motions of these scenarios. We really enact them. We are enacting chokes and grabs and hard holds and weapons, uh, weapons disarmament. And we use our voices and we're loud. And for so many women, um, they can't be in the same room simply as men who, after uh, dealing with years of abuse, and, you know, we've heard the stories uh, from trainers who watch women leave trainings because they can't handle or just don't want to handle training with men. It's, you know, for women who have experienced sexual assault, forcing them to engage in physical, intense contact with men is, you know, kind of inhuman, it seems. So I think um, we want to provide those spaces because we are trying to serve women who have been underserved historically. And those women are the ones who have experience sexual assault, who are in domestic abuse situations, who have been consistently shunned or silenced by the court system and not given space 
to be and organize and train with other women um, by themselves without a male presence there. So that's, you know, the class that we're trying to serve with our trainings. Um, and, you know, providing safe spaces for women who don't have anywhere else to go is actually pretty foundational to the work that we do. So um, were you, in, in developing this organization, were you influenced by the Gulabi Gang? And what would you say some of the similarities and or differences might be between you and them? Yes, I love the Gulabi Gang. I think they were actually one of the main reasons or inspirations for starting uh, Warrior Sisters. I had been kind of keeping up with them and their work for a long time and was, you know, amazed that a small group um, founded by one woman with a lathe or a bamboo stick was able to garner so much support. And now, you know, they have thousands of women who are actually enacting real material justice in these really poor, um, really oppressive situations. So, yeah, I mean, they're a major inspiration because I didn't see anything like that happening in America. Um, and, you know, I, I guess I just felt like it was really necessary to do something material and to do something direct um, in actually halting sexual violence. So, yes, we were inspired by them. And I, but, I, you know, I don't think that I can draw an incredible amount of similarities, mostly because we're so small right now. We just got started, and I, I wouldn't really be able to compare our tiny efforts to the amazingness that, you know, Sampa Powell and the Gulabi Gang have been. Um, but I would like to be that effective. I mean, they operate on a strategy that we are attempting to operate on, which is two-pronged. Um, wait, wait, and wait. obviously, you know, the... Before, sorry? I'm sorry. Before, before you talk about the strategy, could you tell people what the Gulabi Gang is? Sure, yeah. <laughs> That's a good point. Um, so the Gulabi Gang is a gang of women in um, India, and it was formed by Sampat Pal, and um, they are also called the Pink Sari Gang. And they, they operate in one of the poorest districts in the country, and so some of the things that kind of go on in that district are um, really rigid caste divisions. There's a lot of female illiteracy. There's a lot of domestic violence. There's child labor, child marriages. There's dowry demands. Um, a lot of really horrible situations. And so the Galabian was formed initially to punish oppressive husbands um, and fathers and brothers and, you know, oppressive male friends um, who were combating uh, who are uh, perpetrating domestic violence. Um, and so what they do and what they, they've done is um, they first, you know, accost male offenders and plead them to, plead them to see reason. So um, that can be as simple as finding out that someone has perpetrated a horrible assault and going to their doorstep and, you know, asking them what, holding them accountable verbally. Um, and so a lot of what they do is, you know, just showing up at their door and letting them know that women are watching. Um, so, yeah, showing, showing up and making them be accountable verbally. And then, um, you know, if the, if the men refuse to see reason and they refuse to listen or to apologize and relent, then what the Gulabi Gang will do is they will drag them into the street and um, hold them accountable publicly in front of their community and announce their crimes, um, which I think is excellent. And then if the men resort to violence, then the Gulabi gang uses their lathes or their bamboo sticks 
um, to defend themselves and to also attack the men with them and make them pay physically for their assault. Um, so, you know, they are, you know, keeping their eyes and ears out in the community, and they're also training how to use lobbies, how to defend themselves, um, and they're building a really, really powerful, strong women's movement that's, you know, thousands and tens of thousands large right now. Thank you. So you were saying before the strategy, their strategy and your strategy. Super. Yeah. Okay. So, okay. So, um, I guess the biggest similarity between them and us, um, aside from the millions of differences, uh, one being that they're operating in a third world country and we're, you know, in America where we wouldn't be able to go attack perpetrators with lobbies, unfortunately. Um, but we are inspired by their strategy, which I was saying is two pronged. Um, and one is obviously training women, uh, teaching them basic self-defense techniques, teaching them, you know, how to avoid really horrendous circumstances, but if they get themselves in them, then to defend themselves. Um, so that's the first prong. But the second prong is really more about community awareness. And I think I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but basically what they do is they just publicize their efforts and they let people know that, hey, women are training. You know, women are talking to each other. You can't just get away with this kind of activity anymore because we're going to hold you accountable. And um, that seems to have worked a lot for them. And it also reminds me, I'm going to kind of jump across the world for a minute back to America because it reminds me of a study um, in Orlando where I actually went to school in my undergrad. Um, but this was in 1966 and 67. There was, like, outrageous rates of rape and sexual assault in Orlando, Florida. And um, so the response from the local police force was to do a really well-publicized training of women in arms. So they taught them how to use arms and how to disarm weapons. Um, and so this training, obviously, you know, the word got out about it, and it was, like I said, really highly publicized. And the effect was that in the following year, in 1967, the rape rate in Orlando dropped by 88%, and it didn't drop anywhere else in the state or anywhere else in the country. Um, so, you know, the interesting part about that is that no, not a single woman that was trained had to use what she learned in reality. It seemed to be the, that the knowledge that women were training was enough to deter rapists by 88%. Um, so that's the second part of our strategy, is to let people know that women are training and women are watching. And we even have, you know, we, we've been doing a flyering campaign around um, Eugene where we just post up these awesome posters of women um, kicking ass and, um, you know, with the words, rapists be warned, women are training, women are watching. You know, we're talking to each other, and if you hurt one of us, you welcome retribution from us all. And that's, you know, we think almost as important as actually training women in self-defense, is letting men know that they're just not going to be able to get away with this stuff much longer. Um, and if they do get away with it, then it's not going to be for long because we're going to hold them accountable. So we like to call it a, an accountability campaign, and we're just really getting started with it. But we did take, you know, inspiration from the Galabi gang, and hopefully it will be as effective as what they're doing. So are there other groups that you know of in the United States doing doing similar work to yours? Um, honestly, not that I know of. And I've looked into it a bit, and what I've found is I've 
I've come across other organizations that are offering trainings for money, um, so paid women's self-defense trainings. And then I've also come across some um, that train women once in a while for free, so once a month. Um, and they're not, you know, made to suit a community that's learning and growing together. Um, and I guess the other major difference is that I haven't come across any other organizations offering free, ongoing trainings that are specifically for women and only women. Um, and like I said before, I mean, we do co-ed trainings, and we intend to offer trainings for um, other groups that are high risk, but we focus on women, and we provide female-only trainings, which I have not come across anywhere else. Um, but I guess, so aside from that, one of the other things that makes us really unique is that we have a background in Krav Maga and Haganah, which are Israeli um, hand-to-hand combat martial arts. And... I think that those kinds of martial arts, I mean, I, I love them especially because I was raised Jewish, and so it feels close to home for me, but they are very simple and reality-based. There's no honor involved. So a lot of martial arts, you know, you have to, you have shots that you don't take because it's not deemed honorable, but with us, you know, we do what we need to do to defend ourselves. We don't have, you know, there's no honor in saving your life. There's no honor in protecting your body. So we don't have the cheap shots. You know, we do, we scratch, you know, if we need to. We go for the eyes. We go for the jugular. We go for the nuts if, all the time, actually. Um, you know, we we are made, our, our trainings are made to suit people who are smaller um, than their opponents. So it works really well for women, really well for small women like me, too, who... You know, I wouldn't be able to match most men in strength or in size in, or in brute force, but I can probably take them down um, with the skills that I'm learning in Krav Maga and Haganah because it's it's simple, straightforward power, pressure points, um, and there's no honor involved, like I said. So I I personally think that this is the best kind of training for women, um, and we you know we operate on a cycle, so we train one set of Things. So we start with combatives, which we call our tools, um, and they're just simple jabs, crosses, elbows, knees, and kicks. Um, and we, we start every single class with those, and then we go into scenarios, so something that you would be experiencing um, if you're on the street. So it can be anything from hand-to-hand situations where you're being grabbed or choked or, you know, um, you know attacked from the side, um, or a weapon situation where you're being held up um, with a gun or a knife. Um, from different angles. And so we'll run through, you know, we'll spend six months running through all of our possible scenarios. And then at the end of the six months, we do it again from the very, very beginning. And so the goal with this, which I haven't seen in any other um, self-defense classes, is repetition and muscle memory. And so we intend to have women participating in this for an indefinite amount of time because the longer you do it, the more these moves and these responses become simply muscle memory. So you don't have to think anymore if someone's attacking you because obviously you can't think if someone's, you know, coming at you. You just have to act. And so we train so that the immediate and intuitive response is one that's going to save someone's life. Um, And so I have not seen that in any other self-defense, women's self-defense organization that's free and ongoing. 
So I think I think that too makes us pretty unique. And then of course, you know, we have only women trainers. I've talked to a lot of women who've gone to women's self-defense classes and they've been trained by a man and they immediately left because it just doesn't really make sense to have that happen. Um, so we have only women trainers and we have only women on our board and we're 100% volunteer run. Um, so we don't, you know, we don't take any money for our own purposes. We're not getting paid at this moment. Um, and, you know, everything that we do is completely free. All of our all of our trainings and all of our defensive materials that we give out, like pepper spray and sun guns, all of that is absolutely free to everyone. So that's, I think that's how we're unique. So how many, how many, um, how many, uh, how many women have you, have you worked with so far? So in our, well, I guess I'll start. I'll start with the co-ed classes because that's been going on for a while, and we've been consistently training 20, 15 to twenty students every single week. The majority of which are female students, um, but we also train male students. Um, and so, fifteen to twenty of them, and then at the Eugene Mission, it's highly fluctuating because women don't live there eternally. They're, you know, people who live there are in and out. But we've trained. Anywhere from, you know, we'll go to a class and there'll be two women there and we'll do the training and that'll be wonderful. Or there'll be, you know, eight or ten there. So that highly fluctuates. And then our open trainings actually started two weeks ago. So we've been having, you know, a few people trickling in. But I guess the hardest part has kind of been getting the word out. Because, you know, when I was talking about rape culture before, it's no secret that this is a really needed um this is a really needed service for the community, especially in Eugene, but really everywhere. Um, but I think it takes a while to build, to get your roots. And that's kind of what we're doing right now is with our open trainings, at least we're trying to find, you know, the community that's going to stick with us. And we're trying to really get grounded and, and get our roots so that we can grow up. Um, but I guess all in all, counting everyone, um, let's see, 30. I guess you could say we have trained 40 individuals, around 40 individuals all in all. So what do you, on the smaller scale and also on the larger cultural scale, what are you hoping to accomplish with, with doing this work? Oh, I'm, I guess, I mean, in an ideal world, we would, you know, end rape and sexual assault. But I think, I mean, it even says in our in our statement of principles that we're not you know, fooling ourselves into believing that this alone is going to end sexual assault. We recognize that it takes more than training. It takes, you know, a cultural effort. Um, so ideally to end sexual assault and rape, realistically to create a strong community of women um, wherever we're based who are knowledgeable um, in self-defense techniques, who are competent and, you know, feeling able to take care of themselves and to take care of their friends and who are talking and who are connected. I think one of the most horrific tools of, of rape culture is that it successfully isolates women. Each one of us, when we're sexually assaulted, um, and I say when because most of us are, um, each one of us, when that happens, we feel totally alone. And we hardly ever talk about it. I mean, if we report it, it's a miracle. But if we tell our friends about it, it's also a miracle. Um, it makes us feel alone in our pain um, and in and in the horrific events that are happening to us. 
and I think that, I mean, that's indicative of what the society as a whole does. It, it isolates each person, each individual, but I mean, especially for women, you know, we, these acts are being perpetrated against us every single day, and yet we're told that it only is us, it must be our fault, um, or we must be the only ones, and so I think, you know, one of our biggest goals is to, to break away from that, and to to build a strong community, just like the Gulabi gang, of women who are talking to each other, sharing their experiences, pointing out the perpetrators in their life, holding them accountable, and um, bringing other women in, and, you know, just kind of growing and staying strong and supporting each other, um, making people feel less alone, I guess. So, have you... Um... So how how long have you been interested in 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 this uh women's self defense work? Has this been mm-hmm. something you've been interested in forever? No. <laughs> it's such a hard question to root um to root activism back to somewhere in my life. Um and I and I love the question because I have to kind of talk about more than actually warrior sisters, but it's also just really difficult to answer. Um, I guess, you know, the more when I think about it, I have to definitely say no, that I have not always been interested in women's self-defense. And I definitely haven't always been a feminist, or at least I haven't always considered myself a feminist, um, which is, you know, interesting to me now that I'm so staunchly calling myself a feminist. But I guess um, I like to credit the origin of my interest in this work to the two religions that I was raised with, which is kind of funny because I am not religious really at all right now. But um, I guess I guess I could start with, you know, I grew up in a Jewish home and I went to a Jewish school. And my Hebrew name uh, is derived from two of the matriarchs in the Jewish religion, um, two of the, you know, women who are considered the mothers of the religion. And my entire life, back from what, like starting when I was in kindergarten and probably before, I learned um, about my culture through stories of persecution and struggle. And I was taught that my people always had to fight to survive. Um, and when I grew older, I started to research my family lineage and to try and put together a family tree. And I found that... Um, a large part of my grandfather's side are completely missing. And they're vanished um, because of the because of the Holocaust. They just are untraceable. Um, and then, you know, later when I was getting more into um, school and college, I learned that those who participated in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising had a higher rate of survival than those who didn't fight back. And so, I guess, um, in a sense. I was always knowing that self-defense is necessary. Um, And I always knew that, you know, struggle is necessary. So that was kind of just built in from childhood. Um, But I didn't really apply that knowledge into feminism or activism until a lot later. And that's when I would, I guess, attribute um, the Quaker religion, which is not one that I grew up with in my home, but one that I experienced every single summer from seven years old all the way until, I guess, almost 20, I went um, to the Appalachian Mountains in North Carolina, and I worked at a little, in a little Quaker community, um, and that's 
you know, where I learned what a healthy community actually means and what healthy interpersonal relationships actually mean and what, you know, simplicity and respect for the land actually means. Um, and that's really when it became painfully clear that um, our culture is not healthy and our culture doesn't have healthy relationships and our culture is living um, in a way that I would not, you know, I would not call healthy in any stretch of the imagination. It's actually kind of a succubus. It's, you know, soul-sucking and resource-sucking. And, um, you know, so so that, I guess, got me into into environmental activism. And, and then it was a little bit later that I, I started recognizing that, you know, the environmental activism and, and feminism are so incredibly linked not just in the fact that, you know, both women and the natural world are getting exploited for their resources, but, you know, it's the same, the same imperative for domination and control that, that is in a, is uh, controlling women and the environment at the same time. So I guess I, I, I guess I kind of, it took me a while to get up to that. You know, a lot of the Jewish background and the Quaker background, you know, Formed, I guess, the the setting for what later became a real uh, a real interest in actually making change, and so um, I guess Warrior Sisters kind of came along when I just you know I'm a very uh, I'm a very uh, rationally minded person sometimes, um, and I say that you know to mean that I I sometimes have to sit down and just work through everything, um, and when you know after paying attention to the horrors that happen in the society and paying attention to the soul-sucking nature of this culture and the stories of my friends and, you know, my, my sisters and, um, you know, trying to deal with the vastness of the problem that is this culture. Um, I had to kind of sit down and just, you know, what can I do? And, you know, there has to be something material that I can do because it just seemed too big, too ambiguous, too amorphous, I guess I should say, and um, too intangible for me to tackle in any effective way. And so I guess, you know, when I sat down and thought about it, I came to, you know, the idea that maybe a way that I can make a material change is actually stopping sexual assault, is actually preventing it. And the way to do that is to teach women to stop it themselves. Um, to actually defend themselves before it actually happens, not, you know, create counseling for them afterwards, which is so needed, but to actually stop it before it happens. And so that's, you know, that's really why Warrior Sisters started is, you know, it felt like a material step that I could take in the direction of the liberation of women from patriarchy. So we have just just a, a minute or two left, and if there if there's anybody who is either in Eugene and is interested in learning self defense, or is elsewhere and is interested in in trying to replicate your ideas in other places, what would you have them do? Awesome. So if they're in if they're in Eugene, I would have them contact me and um, or Warrior Sisters if they go to the website women's-selfdefense.org. 
they can find all of that contact information, and I check it every day, so I get back to them really quickly. They can also contact us through our Facebook, which is just Warrior Sister Society, um, and we'd love to have them. We really would. Um, and if they're somewhere else and want to start um, start something up that's similar, we'd also love to talk to them. We're developing a curriculum that's all our own, and we'd love to share it with women who want to do something similar. So I would you know, request that they just contact us in a similar way via the website and we can start a conversation going because that would be our dream to, you know, expand these efforts to other areas. Well, thank you so much for your work and thank you for being on the radio program today. And I would thank like you. to thank Oh, thank you. And I would like to thank the listeners for listening. My guest today has been Sam Kropp. This is Derek Jensen for Resistance Radio on the Progressive Radio Network.